Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, Kat. What? <laughs> what? What? Since when do you announce my entry into the room? Hey, Kat. Hey. Oh, hello. I, I was as, I was wondering. Hello, if, husband. I, I was wondering if you were going to join us for this podcasting production event. Yeah, but I hope yours is cheery because mine's a wicked bummer. Yours is a bummer. Suck. Mine is. Uh, yeah, mine. Mine's about murder. Oh. So yeah, it could be an interesting show. <gasps> Before we get started, we should mention that uh, this is our 400th episode. And we were going to do something special, and yeah. we even asked people to send in suggestions of things we could do for our 400th show. Yeah. What happened was the only suggestions we got for episode number 420. <laughs> and I like those ideas very much. <laughs> sure you do. Anyway, oh, on vacation, we ran into a guy who met La Dama del Silencio, Juana Barraza. She was the uh, the old lady killer, the professional wrestler in Mexico. So we ran into this guy when we were in Cancun, and he met her. And we asked him if he would tell his story. And he was very generous with his time and did so. My oldest sister got really into a lot of trouble. She became, you know, into narcotics and drugs very early on. Doing the wrong thing, she ended up in prison twice. And then she met her wife there at prison. So I went to visit in Mexico City, the prison, and I met the woman in person. Did you talk to her? The moment you see her, the energy, you don't want to get closer. So my sister told, told me, you know, you're going to see her walking by. And I saw her like from here to maybe four meters. We made like eye contact but you don't want to talk to her. Oh, wow. It's scary. You can feel a strange energy. And maybe it's just me, because I know the story that she killed a lot of 
elderly or elderly ladies. But uh, this is really, really interesting. Yeah, just looking at her picture, the picture of her, look at her eyes and it's evil personified. Mm. I can certainly understand what he's talking about. I, yeah, I'd wow. scoodle right away from that. <laughs> yeah, I'd be doing some serious jail cell scoodling. Well, speaking of murder. Yeah, let me get right to it. You've got some murdery stuff. I do. Awesome. It was January 1827, and it was not the first time that Ann Martin had this awful dream. In fact, she had had it now three nights in a row. In her dreams, she had a recurring vision of her stepdaughter, Maria dead and hastily buried under the floor of a red barn, which was located about a half a mile from the small farmhouse where she lived in Polstead, England. There she shared the farm with her husband, Thomas. Now, if it had just been, if, if this vision had just been one night, she could have easily written, off, written it off as a bad nightmare. Sure. But since she had had it several nights in a row, she began to think that some, it was something more. So she asked her husband to go check it out. He thought it was it was foolish, but uh, to humor his wife, he set out to the red barn to see if he could find anything. When he got there, he discovered a dip in the floor, and under it was an unusual slump in the dirt. Okay. According to one account, Thomas used a spike to dig the dirt up. Apparently, he was a professional mole catcher, and he had a tool called a mole spike. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, I, I really debated whether or not to mention that. And you thought, this is a good thing to share? Well, it just kind of popped out of my mouth. It wasn't even in my notes. I hate that. So he used this spike to dig up the earth, and he soon pulled up a chunk of rotting flesh. Oh, no. He dug a couple more feet, and he found a human skeleton in a sack. Wait, this doesn't make any sense. So this was their daughter? This was his daughter. It was her stepdaughter. And they didn't know she was missing? Well, I'm confused. She was supposedly, she had supposedly eloped to a different town. Oh, all right. Okay. The uh, old-fashioned way of saying, she went to visit her sister. Yeah. This event has become known as the Red Barn Murder. Now, this particular Red Barn was a pretty well-known landmark in the Suffolk countryside. It had served as a rendezvous point for Maria and her lover, William Corder. Oh, they would often sneak away to steal some time together. At the sexy red barn? Yep. This was before they eloped to Ipswich on May 18th, 1827. So Anne and her husband Thomas thought that uh, she was living a happy life in Ipswich until these dreams started happening. Well, up until that point, Maria had lived with her father and stepmother at the small farm. Maria had two children in the past. Uh, the first one had died as an infant. And the father of that child, interestingly, was William Corder's brother. Uh, the second child's father was a third man. He was considered a gentry and uh, didn't really want to be known as the father of a lowly mole catcher's daughter. Oh, well, then you shouldn't be banging her in the barn. William had uh, a bit of a reputation about town for being less than honest. Uh, he once kidnapped his father's pigs and sold them, keeping all the money for himself. And oh, no. Because of this reputation he had, he had moved to a different town. But in a short period of time, his brothers and father had all died, and so he returned to run the farm himself. And while he was there, he offered to help the Martins with their farm, and that's where he met Maria, and they fell in love. Aha. Uh -huh. Originally, he wanted them to keep their relationship secret. 
man, does no one want to be public with Maria? This sucks. And that's you know one of the reasons why they would meet up at the Red Barn. They didn't want you not know, just because it was sexy. Well, Red Barns are sexy, <laughs> but yes, um, it wasn't long though before Maria became pregnant for a third time. Quarter proposed that he marry her as soon as the child was born, but sadly the baby died in the arms of her mother just two weeks after birth. So they wrapped the infant in a napkin and placed it in a box, and Corder took the box and said he was going to bury it someplace that would be safe. And even though there was no child involved now, he said he still wanted to marry Maria. But then he said they had to do it pretty quickly because he had heard rumors floating about town that the local constable was looking for Maria to arrest her because she had had a third child out of wedlock. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. At the time, that was a crime called bastardy. Those found guilty were punished by public whipping. Oh, for God's sake. Quarter said they needed to elope immediately. So on the 18th of May, 1827, he showed up at the Martin Cottage and told Maria, hey, time to go. The police were out to get her. They were on the way. And because she feared that they were on the way, she was afraid that that she'd be recognized. So Quarter told her to dress in a disguise. (laughs) I'm sorry, I pictured a hot dog costume. I don't know why. (laughs) But you said disguise and I pictured a hot dog costume. And then they made their getaway in the Oscar Mayer Wiener mobile. (laughs) The end. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. This is serious. Like like one of those dancing hot dog uh, mascot guys. (laughs) Yeah. That wouldn't draw too much attention. (laughs) That would fit right in in Victorian England. Okay, sorry. So uh, she elected to not dress as a hot dog, um, but as a man. And she also puts, you know, a change of clothing, her regular clothes, in a bag and took with her. Quarter told her to wait a few minutes until after he left and then slip out the back door and meet him at the Red Barn. Meet me at our spot. There, she could change into her clothes, and they would be able to flee to Ipswich and become married. That was the last time that any of Maria's family members saw her Uh until Anne, her stepmother, started having these dreams. Eleven months went by. They heard nothing. They would write her letters, but they never got a response. On occasion, Quarter would show up back in town in Polstead, and he always had a reason or an excuse why she wasn't with him. And why she wasn't writing. She had injured her hand one time. Another time she was just too busy to come with him. Um, I'm sorry. That's such a stupid reason. (laughs) She'd injured her hand. She can't write you. She hurt her hand. What? It's so dumb. (laughs) He should have just said it's really hard to write when you're wearing a hot dog costume. (laughs) So after Thomas made this grisly discovery under the barn floor, he notified the local police officers and soon they were looking for William Corder. It didn't take him long before they tracked him down in London. He was managing a boarding house with another woman that he had married. He had started a new life already. So he was brought back to Suffolk and charges for murder were filed. Oh, slightly more serious than charges of having a baby. This trial became the sensation of its age. It began on the 7th of August in 1828. Because of the immense interest in the case, it had been postponed a couple of times. Hotels in the area began filling up as early as July 21st. And the admittance to court was by ticket only. Oh, the demand was huge. And even so, the crowd was so large outside the courtroom the day of the trial 
The judge and the barristers had trouble getting into the building. It was a mob scene. So the trial gets underway, and because of the condition of the body, her exact cause of death could not be established. Strangulation couldn't be ruled out. To confuse the issue even further, there were signs that she had been shot and also stabbed. So they really couldn't tell, you know, what was the cause of death. It could have been any of those three things and probably a combination of all of them. That sounds like overkill to me. Sounds very personal. That does sound personal. The indictment charged Corder with, quote, murdering Maria Martin by feloniously and willfully shooting her with a pistol through the body and likewise stabbing her with a dagger. To avoid any chance of a mistrial, he was indicted on nine charges, including one of forgery. They were going to pin this guy down. Corder pleaded not guilty. And according to his version of the events, he admitted to being in the barn with Martin but said that he left after they argued. He claimed that as he was leaving, he heard a pistol shot while he was walking away, and when he returned to the barn, found her dead with the pistol by her side. He pleaded with the jury to give him the benefit of the doubt. They did not. After retiring, it only took them 35 minutes to return a guilty verdict. He was sentenced to hang and afterward be dissected. Oh, Here's what the judge said. Very specific. Quote, my advice to you is not to flatter yourself with the slightest hope of mercy on earth, that you be taken back to the prison from whence you came and that you be taken from thence on Monday next to a place of execution and that there you will be hanged by the neck until you are dead and that your body shall afterward be dissected and anatomized. And may the Lord God Almighty in his infinite goodness have mercy on your soul. Wow. So he was bummed. You know, he yeah. was sitting there in his jail cell and uh, for three days waiting for his execution. They carried out justice quickly, I guess, in those days. And his wife, who he had married and was running the boarding house with, was pleading with him to confess his crimes to a priest to cleanse him of all sins. And so for three days, he deliberated on what to do. Finally, he did confess his sins to the prison chaplain. He claimed that he had accidentally shot her in the eye while they were arguing, and she was changing out of her disguise. He strongly denied ever stabbing her. It's a real weak defense. Yeah, and it sounds like he really didn't want to to even confess to a priest, let alone to court. So in August of 1828, Corder was led to the gallows in Bury St. Edmunds. He seemed too weak to stand. He couldn't even, he couldn't walk. They had to carry him there. Now, was that just because he was so sad that he was going to die? Yeah. Shortly before noon, in front of a huge crowd of spectators, in fact, one newspaper reported as many as 20,000 people, he was executed. But just before the hood was drawn over his head, he said, quote, I am guilty. My sentence is just. I deserve my fate, and may God have mercy on my soul. Uh-huh. So he's swinging by his neck for over an hour, and then they cut his body down, and the, the executioner, John Foxton, immediately stole his pants. Um, he stole his pants? He, he stole his pants. 
Um, <clears throat> why did he steal his pants? That was a custom. The executioner got first dibs on anything. Oh, well, then he didn't steal. No, but he it was... He just got to have them. It was just funnier to say, steal his pants. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, they then took the body back to the courtroom where they slid it open along the abdomen and exposed the muscles. Oh, got right to it. Didn't waste any time. Sure. Then they allowed the crowds to file by and, and look at him. I mean... You don't have an opportunity to see the insides of a person a lot. That's so. that's true. That's fair. Maybe they charged admission, raise a little money for the family of the of the victims. Um, at six o'clock, they shut the doors, and according to the Norwich and Bury Post, five thousand people though had filed by the body by that point. Wow. The next day, the dissection and post-mortem were performed in front of an audience of students at Cambridge University. Cool. It's reported that a galvanic battery was brought in from Cambridge, Cambridge, and it was likely that they experimented on Quarter's body. You know, they'd connect the battery up to the muscles, sure. make him dance around a little bit. Yep. His sternum was opened and all of his internal organs were removed and examined. Now, phrenology was all the rage during this time. The head shape science or pseudoscience, <laughs> I should say. Yes, that's correct. After examining the skull, they determined that it was profoundly developed in the areas of, quote, secretiveness, acquisitiveness, destructiveness, phyloprogenitiveness, and, and imitativeness. Um, basically, they were saying he was a destructive guy who liked to acquire things while having children and imitating people secretly. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that narrows it down. So Corridor's skeleton was put on display in a glass case at the West Suffolk Hospital, and and they apparently rigged it up with a mechanism that made his arm point to a collection box when you approached the case. <laughs> <laughs> And eventually his skull was removed by Dr. John Kilner, who wanted to add it to his extensive collection of Red Barn memorabilia. After a series of unfortunate events, he became convinced the skull was cursed and he handed it off to a friend whose name was Hopkins. Wow. Further disasters plagued both of the men, and finally they paid for the skull to be given a Christian burial in an attempt to lift the supposed curse. The rest of the skeleton was displayed at the museum in the Royal College of Surgeons in England, and there it would stay until 2004 when it was removed and cremated. Several death masks were made and survive to this day, but one of the strangest artifacts from the story is this. During the autopsy, the body was completely stripped of its skin. It was then tanned and wrapped around the cover of a book which chronicles all of Quarter's misdeeds. That book is still in existence today in the museum's library. Now, I'm not sure if this is the same book that you included in one of your stories about human-skinned books, but I wouldn't be surprised. Now, that guy's name was Horwood, I think. In 1846, Punch magazine cynically joked that, quote, murder is doubtless a very shocking offense. Nevertheless, as what is done is not to be undone, let us make money out of it. Sure, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And and learn. Learn how to create a mechanism that causes a skeleton to point to a collection box. These are the things, I mean, it led to probably the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> so even after the execution had taken place, the town of Polstead became a destination for many tourists. In fact, that year alone, 1828, it's said that more than 200,000 people visited the area. 
Wow. They eventually stripped the red barn bare. Some of the wood was reportedly sold as toothpicks. That's weird. They wrote songs and poetry about the red barn murder. This was a huge cultural phenomena. A play was also written about Maria Martin and the murder in the Red Barn. It was a sensational hit through the mid-19th century. And some say that it may have been the most performed dramatic play of the time. Charles Dickens himself even published an account of the murder in his magazine, all the year round. Wow. He rejected, however, the idea that Corder was guilty. Oh. He, yeah. He thought the account of the stepmother's dreams, quote, rather far-fetched. After the trial and to this day, there are still doubts about what really happened. The main speculation sur- surrounds Anne Martin, Maria's stepmother. She was only a year older than Maria. So... It has long been suspected that she had an affair with Corder, and the two may have murdered Maria to dispose of her. What would the the benefit of that be, though? Because he went and married some other chick and lived in Ipswich, not Notlob. Then you'll like probably this theory better. All right. It may have been that she set Corder up after being shunned when he married that other woman. Anne's dreams started only a few days after he had secretly married the other woman in London. So it suggested that jealousy was the motive. But he said he shot her in the eyeball. Revealing the burial place and that the dreams were simply an elaborate setup. Mm. Well, here's what I think. If the, if there's any truth to this. Okay. He said at one point that he heard, he left and he heard a gunshot. Right. And he came back and found her dead with a pistol. Yes. He was implying that he thought it was suicide. Maybe... She, Anne, the stepmother, followed them out there. Mm -hmm. He left. She shot her stepdaughter and left the gun there. And he came back in and thought that uh, she had killed herself. So he panicked and buried the body. Mm -hmm. But what would the benefit be to confessing to a crime he did not commit? Because he wanted to get it right in the eyes of God. But God knows that he didn't shoot her in the eye. Yeah, but his other wife was pestering him. Do you think that's that a little wife pestering is enough to confess to murder? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Those were different days. I it, mean, my wife pestering can't even get you to like clean the trash in the bathroom. Well, that's a woman's job. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. There are many questions surrounding the Red Barn murder that we may never get a satisfactory answer to. I'm satisfied. It's, I would be totally satisfied, but it's to me a little suspicious like Charles Dickens said, a little far-fetched that they found the body because of a vision she had in a dream. Well, I've had premonitory dreams. That doesn't mean... Or maybe she knew that something had gone awry, but she couldn't figure out what it was, and that's why she was dreaming that something so, had gone like wrong. A, like a subconscious yeah. thing? Yeah. Well, maybe. maybe. I mean, I dreamt about your proposal before you proposed to me. You remember that? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I dreamt that you were sitting on a brown couch at your sister's house, and you were talking about wanting to marry me. And, and that, that's exactly what had happened. Yeah. Although the couch wasn't really brown. It was more of a dark tan. Okay. I have photos of that couch and it's brown. My source material was an article written by Lucas Riley for Mental Floss, uh, Wikipedia, and Great British Life. Red Barn Murder. And now, that thing in the middle. Deep in space, about 50 light years from Earth, in the constellation Centaurus, 
there's a most unusual star. It's comprised of pure crystallized carbon, which means it is a diamond that weighs 10 billion trillion trillion carats. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house, yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer hey there i'm dylan lewis one of the hosts of motley fool money each weekday on motley fool money we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on wall street on weekends we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts authors and executives that understand them tune in for insights a long-term perspective on investing and of course stock ideas plenty of them 
To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you thought we might churn out only 50 or so episodes of this podcast and then throw in the towel. And you know what? We weren't so sure ourselves. Welcome to the second half of episode number 400 of The Box of Oddities. Dear Cat and Jethro, my husband recently got an amazing job opportunity that was too good to, no, irresponsible to pass up. <laughs> the move brought us and our two tween daughters from Maine all the way to West Texas. We knew it would be hard to leave our home, our family, and our friends. Damn it, here come the tears. The transition hasn't been great, despite all the wonderful perks my husband's new job brings us. We're a family of freaks, and there don't seem to be any other freaks in sight. Each day, I drive our girls to school they don't feel quite comfortable at. It's always tough going to a new school. And I chew a hole in my lip so they don't catch me crying. We listen and re-listen to the Box of Oddities every morning on the drive there, and it feels like we have a piece of home with us. Stop. We all hope that maybe we can move back at some point, but until then, it helps to listen to a couple of old friends from back home, and it makes the days a little easier. Please know that you're loved and oh so appreciated by myself and especially our daughters, sending our love and flying our freak flag high in the desert of West Texas, Sarah Harper in Georgia. That's really sweet, you guys, and I know a big move can be... Well, scary and challenging, and certainly going to a new school. But rest assured, once you've been there for a while, the freaks will find you. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) (laughs) There are freaks everywhere. Literally everywhere. Mm. We just got a new patron this morning from Norway. Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, you can find one in West Texas. All right, what is this uh, depressing, horrible, terrible story that you're about to tell me? Bhopal, India is the capital of the Madhya Pradesh state in central India. Madhya Pradesh, also known as MP, is the home of UNESCO World Heritage Sites, uh, natural rock shelters displaying paintings that appear to date from the Mesolithic period. The Kajuraho group of monuments, a group of Hindu and Jain temples that are, again, UNESCO World Heritage Sites, marble rock formations, and the biodiversity-rich Satpura Tiger Reserve, finding a place uh, in UNESCO's tentative list of natural world heritage sites. Bhopal is known as the City of Lakes, which is a reference to the waters and thus rich soils that create this region rich in natural resources. And it was home to nearly a million people. On December 2nd, 1984, there were a hundred workers on the late shift at the Union Carbide Pesticide Plant located in the Jai Prakash Nagar, a particularly poor area of the impoverished city. They were in the process of making the pesticide seven. This involved mixing carbon tetrachloride, methyl isocyanate, and alpha naphthol. But there was a problem at the plant. At about 11 p.m., the gauges began to indicate a dangerous level of pressure in the tanks. Now, nitrogen was forced in to extract the MIC. However, on this day, the process wasn't working correctly, and both the MIC, the methyl isocyanate, and the nitrogen were leaking. According to History.com, this was not a terribly unusual experience. So when some of the workers began having a physical reaction to the leak, which 
reactions to MIC can include discomfort and burning of the skin, coughing, chest pain, tightness in the chest, difficulty breathing and vomiting. Those affected were familiar with the experiences. So it was decided by supervisors that the situation would be checked into after tea. After tea, yes. Now, as soon as you said Bhopal, I knew immediately what this story was because I remember so vividly when this happened. It was on the news 24-7 for weeks. It was unbelievable. I want to hear more about that because, you know, I was two. So I don't know what was going on. Yeah, I bought my first house. (laughs) The effects of MIC will depend on the concentration of the exposure and the length of time that the person is exposed. But exposure to a high concentration can result in severe damage to the lungs and lead to death. MIC is a chemical used in the manufacture of polyurethane foam plastics, and as in this case, pesticides. It's usually handled and shipped as a liquid, which is easily burned and very explosive. Now, at this plant, the MIC was stored in three partially buried 15,000-gallon tanks. And after tea would be too late, as approximately 12, 15 a.m., there was an explosion. Now, people living in the vicinity of the plant heard alarms, but again, because alarms going off at the plant were so frequent, they ignored them. It wasn't until the gas, kept close to the ground because of the cold air that night, began to move into the shanty towns that surrounded the Union Carbide plant that people realized the seriousness of the situation. But again, by that time, it was too late, and more than 600,000 people were exposed to the gas cloud. This caused throats and eyes to burn. It induced nausea and killed thousands of people immediately. Yeah, it wasn't even a slow buildup to this. It was just like, boom. And yeah, that was a long time ago, but it was the story globally for, for weeks. And what I remember from that, what I take away from that, are scenes that were shown on CNN or ABC News or whatever of just bodies in the street, just piled up it was it was like a nightmare yeah and the situation was obviously terrifying people saw what was beginning to happen and it created a panic tens of thousands of people tried to leave Bhopal Back at the plant, there was a piece of equipment called a vent gas scrubber, which was meant to prevent toxic gas from spreading, and it completely failed to operate. Mm. In the midst of the chaos, emergency buses came to move the workers to safety, but the drivers of those buses ran away. Even worse, the plant failed to inform local authorities of what had happened immediately. Oh my God. They, they later claimed that their phones weren't working. Well, yeah. Sorry, I wasn't getting any reception. She couldn't write. Her hand was hurt. <laughs> now, maybe the phones weren't working, but at a place like this, that's where you want the phones working. Yeah, I would think so. I think that that would be a priority. Yeah. Stampedes resulted as people tried to outrun the gas. Victims flooded local hospitals. They weren't prepared for the onslaught. And sadly, the best and most effective treatment for people who had been exposed to the gas or people who are trying to not be exposed to the gas was a simple wet cloth over the face. But virtually none of the medical personnel dispensed this information, either because they couldn't or didn't know or 
So something, I hadn't heard that. Something as simple as a wet cloth Mm -hmm. over your face. Wow. Yeah. Estimates of the death toll vary from as few as 3,800 to as many as 16,000. But government figures now refer to an estimate of 15,000 killed over the years as a result of exposure. Many of the locals were awarded compensation of a few hundred dollars. Oh, well, there you go. That was worth it. But it wasn't just the initial exposure that had been devastating to the people of Bhopal. Data collected over nine years by the Sambhavna Trust suggests that even after three decades, the mortality rate for gas-exposed victims is still 28% higher than average. Wow. They're twice as likely to die of cancers, diseases of the lungs, and tuberculosis. Three times as likely to die from kidney diseases. And 63% more likely to have illnesses. Yeah, I can see where, you know, exposure to poisonous gas would affect one's immune system. Um, What about people that died because of the stampede or the panic? I mean, we don't even have any numbers on that. There's no way to know. Yeah, that's crazy. The trust data also highlights the fact that over three years in the early 2000s, almost a quarter of gas-exposed victims were diagnosed with an underactive thyroid, Mm. which can have devastating long-term health impacts. Investigations later established that substandard operating and safety procedures at the understaffed plant led to the catastrophe. Obviously, a myriad of things went wrong here. And when Union Carbide officials arrived in India following the disaster, they were arrested, but none were convicted. Wow. Despite evidence suggesting that management was substantially negligent in the management of the plant. In 1998, the former factory site was turned over to the state of Madhya Pradesh. And in 2001, Dow Chemical Company bought the Union Carbide Corporation. Had it been operating since the disaster? It had not. Okay. In the early 21st century, more than 400 tons of toxic industrial waste were still present on the site. My God. That's over 30 years later. Many of those who were exposed to the gas have given birth to physically and mentally disabled children. The government has concluded that the area is contaminated. Activists allege that there have been deliberate suppression by the government of any research that proves the long-term systemic or genetic damage caused by the gas explosion, which only protects the corporations involved. Sure. There was one rare study authorized by the government medical body the Indian Council for Medical Research, which found that between 2016 and 2017, 9% of the babies born to gas-exposed mothers had birth defects, compared to 1.3%. Well, that alone should be enough. Well, that study was subsequently ordered not to be published or disclosed. Oh, my God. The Bhopal incident is still considered by most to be the worst industrial disaster in history. But it's far from over. According to The Guardian, the Chingari Children's Center, which was established for those born with disabilities as a consequence of this disaster, has registered over a thousand children, mostly affected by palsy, muscular dystrophy, intellectual disabilities and severe learning difficulties. The center's founder, Rashida B., says this is the terrible legacy of Bhopal. All these children were born to parents or grandparents 
who were in contact with the gas that night. Even babies who were exposed to the gas, their children's children are showing signs of damage because of this exposure. The situation, she said, is getting worse, not better. Bhopal's tragedy has not stopped. Yeah, the word Bhopal, in my mind, will always be connected to chemical disaster or industrial accident. To me, that it's like it's like Chernobyl. In doing reading about this, it was difficult to find information about Bhopal that wasn't related to this incident. I had to search like very specific phrases like Bhopal UNESCO World Heritage Sites, you know, that would that would lead me to any information about what this city looked like and what its story was outside of this disaster. Because really, its story now is the damage that this corporation and its failures has caused. Yeah, it's synonymous with industrial catastrophe. Yeah, that uh, that was one of those, you know, you talk about those moments where everybody stands still and yeah. watches the TV screen. It was like that very, for the first few days when that was reported. I, I remember people watching it on TVs and department stores and yeah. things like that. It was just one of those moments. And, and there seemed to be a lot of them at that time. There was, of course... Chernobyl, there was that, there was Bhopal, there was the space shuttle catastrophe, and then the release of Debbie Gibson's first CD. So there there were a lot of things in that time period. That was just a sad effort to add some comic relief to this incredibly depressing episode. I'm doing the best I can. I know. I know. You do good. Anyway, um, that's a tragedy, and the fact that it's still not being addressed is absolutely horrendous. Thanks. thanks for joining us. Thanks, question mark. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Actually, do want to thank the uh, most recent members of the Order of Freaks on Patreon. Yeah, welcome to Olia, Ron, Chloe, Megan, and Daniel. We appreciate your Norwegian clong, clargs, clay, Korg, Korg, Krog, Krogs, Krons, Krons, Krones. No, nope. That's something else. Also, Terry from Canada. Oh, Terry from Canada. Thanks, Terry from Canada. I love your loonies. And we couldn't love you more. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. 
have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.